We'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I do want to mention that if you do not have a Bible of your own and you would like one, we have them at the Welcome Center. We only have a few left um, for adults, and we have children's Bibles as well. And so you can feel free to pick one of them up after the service um, so you have your own Bible. I'll be reading verses 11 to 12. We'll be looking at um, generally the uh, first 12 verses, but I'll read uh, to you now from God's holy and inert word, verse 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray now that by your grace you would give us ears to hear the message you have for us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, at the beginning of a year, we usually do a Bible reading plan, and we have those available, but one of the more famous ones is from a, a gentleman named Robert Mary Machane. Um, he was a minister in the Church of Scotland in the mid-1800s, and he's pretty famous for that Bible reading plan. Um, well, he had this to say, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. Maybe you've heard the name E.M. Bounds. He has written very large volumes on the topic of prayer, and he said this, What the church needs today is not more machinery or better machinery, not new organizations or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. You know, we have a lot of talk in the church today. We even do it here. I, I do it about growing the church, our desire to see the church grow. And there, there's a lot of planning of events and activities for that purpose. That is a good thing. Uh, we have concerns, as do all churches, for finances, and that's important. We have a desire, and we pray for a desire for revival, to see souls saved, to see people come into a, a true knowledge of Jesus Christ, to see men and women and children walking faithfully with their God. But see, none of it, none of it will be realized without prayer. Another pastor said, you know, when the devil sees a man or woman who really believes in prayer who knows how to pray and who really does pray, and above all, when he sees a whole church on its face before God in prayer, Satan trembles as much as he ever did, for he knows that his day in that church or community is at an end. Well, here lies the problem, though. I mean, when you take American evangelicalism, generally speaking, I think it's safe to say that we're not a praying people. The evangelical church in the 21st century is surely not known for prayer. That does not mean that there aren't churches that are known for prayer or that even individuals here are known for prayer. But generally speaking, it's obvious, at least to me, that we don't spend the time necessary in prayer to see the spiritual fruit that we long to see and brought to fruition. Let me give you an example. This was taken some years ago now, but a survey was done among evangelical, that is Bible-believing pastors, asking them to share the amount of time they spend on average in prayer daily. 
And the result was four minutes a day. That was the average. Now, to comprehend for you how little time that is, men that I've mentioned from this pulpit like Martin Luther or John Calvin or John Stott or, uh, excuse me, John Knox or Charles Spurgeon, I'm sure Stott could be included as well, uh, they spent on average three to four hours a day in prayer. Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And so the point is clear. In America, generally speaking, we're not a praying church. But see, that wasn't the case in biblical times. And it surely wasn't the case when it came to the Apostle Paul. Paul was a man of prayer. You know, of all the things we learned in this series that were drawn to a close this morning on the Apostle Paul, all the things we learned, he was very intellectual. He had a towering intellect. He, he was very insightful theologically. His doctrine is sound, and he communicates it well as you read in his letters. He has a passion, we learned, for advancing the gospel. He endured greatly under persecution. All that is true of Paul, but see, if that's all you know, you cannot understand the Apostle Paul. To understand the Apostle Paul, you have to come to grips with the fact that he was a man of prayer. In the book of Acts, Luke, the author, portrays Paul as a man of prayer. He talks about it in Acts 9. He talks about it in Acts 13, Acts 14, Acts 15, Acts 16, Acts 20, Acts 22, and Acts 28. And then when you turn to Paul's letters themselves, he he not only reports the fact that I'm praying, but he shares the content of his prayers. You know, we'll often say to someone, I I do this regularly, I'll call somebody up and say, I want you to know, brother, sister, I'm praying for you. Nothing wrong with that. Or maybe you've said on occasion to a friend or family member, I just want you to know that I prayed for you today. There is nothing wrong with that. But see, Paul goes further. That's the point here. He tells us what he prays. And he does that on purpose because he wants the churches, including ours, but in biblical times and Paul's time and beyond, he wants the congregations uh, to pray themselves and he wants their prayers, he wants our prayers to be shaped by his prayers, to be our guide and our direction. And so this morning, what I want to do as we close out our series on the Apostle Paul is look at one of his prayers. There's several. In fact, one of the best books you can buy on prayer is by a man named D.A. Carson. Uh, and a lot of what I'm going to say this morning comes from that book on Paul's spiritual priority in prayer. Um, You you should try to pick that up. But in either case, uh, we want to look at one of Paul's prayers. You could look at many. And we're going to look at this one in 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 1, and particularly verses 11 to 12. And we're going to do it under the following four headings. We're going to look at the context of Paul's prayer. We're then going to look at the content of the prayer itself, and then uh, the concern of Paul's prayer, and then the confidence he has. So you see that? See how I pulled that off? Four C's, context, content, concern, and confidence. Uh, I, I, I assume maybe I got it from D.A. Carson. <laughs> but in either case, that's what we're going to look at. 
So let's look at the first point, the context. Look at verse 11. Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you. Another translation with this in mind. Paul's prayer here in verse 11 and 12 grows out of what he has said in verses 3 to 10. It's in that context. When he prays for in verses 11 and 12 is shaped by what he already says in verses 3 to 10. Now, in verses 3 and 4, Paul gives thanks for the Thessalonians for three reasons. Look at verses 3 and 4. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. Paul gives thanks that they first have a faith that is growing. They had this increasing reliance upon the Lord. It's the mark of advancing Christians, says one writer, that they grow sure of Jesus Christ every day. They're not satisfied with yesterday's attainment, spiritually speaking, but they're, they're always stretching forward, attempting to grow and mature in the faith daily. And so these saints here, Paul gives thanks to God in his prayer for their growing in faithfulness. That's the first thing. Second is a love that is increasing, he says. It's, it's not their love of God he had in mind, although that's probably true. Uh, rather, he speaks of the love of every one of you for one another. And this isn't some mushy sentimentality, uh, the sentimental love, but rather it's a practical love for one another. A growing church is one that grows greater in service is the idea. And notice everyone is participating here, Paul's saying. They're, they're all practicing love toward one another. All the congregation is manifesting this love for one another. All of them are involved in loving. Their love for one another was increasing. That's the second reason. And he gives thanks, the third reason, for a steadfastness that endures. Paul says, I boast to all the churches concerning your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. Now, that word there that Paul says steadfastness that we translate in our Bible is usually translated as endurance. It's a description of a person who, who not only endures the circumstances that he finds himself in, he gets through them, but he overcomes them. The, the Thessalonians were persevering under trial, persevering. They were enduring under, and for that, Paul gives thanks. And he not only does it privately to God, but in this case, publicly to other churches. And so we here have the, these three marks of a truly vibrant church. If you want to see a summary of these three marks, look at verse 3 of chapter 1 here. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. They had this increasing and growing faith. They had an increasing and growing love for one another. They had an increasing and growing steadfastness, endurance in the midst of trial. That's what Paul gives thanks for. And so this kind of raises the question, what does this have to do with our praying? What, what does it have to do? Well, Carson says this, if in our prayers we were to develop a mental framework, 
similar to Paul's, we must look for signs of grace in the lives of Christians and then give thanks for them. Think think of it this way. Carson asked this question. It's worth asking. For what have you thanked God for recently? Have you gone over the list of members of the church and, or over a list of Christian workers and, and quietly thank God for signs of grace in their life? Now, this implies something, doesn't it? You have to know people to know that they have been growing. But do you make it a matter of praise to God, thankfulness to God, when you observe evidence in, in one another in someone else's life of a growing conformity to Christ? Maybe they're a new believer and, and you see them growing and you say, instead of focusing always on the fact that they haven't grown in certain areas and they're sinning, you, you recognize this and, and they're starting to trust in Christ more and, and there's this genuine spiritual growth seen in them and, and they're being steadfast even though it may be difficult and you thank God for those things. See, those type of things should shape our prayers. They provide a framework for our prayers. Well, in verses 5 to 10, Paul continues to provide context. That's what we're on here, the context or, or the framework for our prayer. Look, look there. This is what Paul says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now, without going into much detail, that's uh, uh, some heavy stuff there. We were, basically, Paul's prayer here grows out of uh, the bad news and the good news connected to the Lord's return. They, that is, unbelievers, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. We, believers, will be granted relief on that day. They, unbelievers, Paul says, face vengeance from Christ. We, believers, face vindication on the last day. See, what is happening here in the context of prayer is Paul's prayer is is being prayed with the end in mind. He has this framework for his prayer that always thinks of the future, this eschatological, this future-oriented focus. Paul always had that focus. We saw that when we looked at it. He lives his life with Christ's return in mind. And that's how he prays with Christ's return in mind. See, the fact that our behavior has eternal consequences is all the more reason for Paul to pray. The fact that the Lord's going to return, Paul prays, and he makes two requests. This is the content of Paul's prayer. Look at verse 11. To this end, knowing Jesus is going to return, 
to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Here, Paul's saying is, in light of the signs of grace we should be looking for in others, they're growing, and, and especially in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return, and so how we live our life matters today. First, we should pray that God may count our brothers and sisters worthy of their calling. Now, we already came across that phrase in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. There, it had to do with the kingdom of God. But here, it has to do with being worthy of your calling. See, Christians have been called by God. They've been called out of darkness into light. They've been called into fellowship, into union with Jesus. And Paul prays that believers will live worthy of that calling. In fact, more specifically, he prays that God himself might count them worthy of his calling. See, Paul's saying this. It's not enough to just be a little bit better than some other Christians. It's not enough to just stay away from big sins. He's saying, I want more from you. I want you to become what you're already declared to be. I want you to become worthy of all that it means to be a called Christian. My concern, Paul's saying, is not with your wealth. It's not even with your health, per se. It's not even with your happiness. And all those things are important. I'm not ultimately concerned, Paul's saying, that your problems go away. What I want to see is more signs of grace for which I already thank God for. I want to see in your life, most importantly, I want to see an increase of faith, I want to see an increase of love, and I want to see an increase of endurance. I am praying for you, not that I don't care about your health, but I am praying with eternity's values in view. That is what Paul is saying. You see, Paul knows that we're going to have to give an account on what we have done with our lives on that last day. God, in a sense, will ask, how have you responded to the way I graciously called you to myself? Have you been living up to your calling? And so Paul prays that this will be true, that you will grow in Christian maturity. That's what the first petition is all about. He knows we're not strong enough to do this on our own. And so he asked God to do it. That our God, look at verse 11, that our God may make you. He's not simply saying, try harder. Come on, get your act together. He probably doesn't have a problem with saying, try harder. But he's not saying that here. He's asking God in prayer to work in your life that you will mature in the faith. And because you'll be maturing in the faith, you'll live worthy of that glorious calling that you have in Christ Jesus. And so here's the question. Again, back to us praying. When was the last time you prayed this sort of prayer for your family or, or for a friend, for your children, or for yourself? Referring to the children, one, one preacher asked, do we spend far more energy praying that our children will pass their exams Get a good job, do the dishes, be happy, 
not stray too far, then we do praying, Lord, help them to live worthy of what it means to be a believer. If you pray for your children's prosperity, nothing wrong with that. If you pray for your children's success, nothing wrong with that. But if that's all you pray for, then you do spiritual maturity. See, what's happening, Paul's saying, is you're praying from the wrong context. You're praying from the wrong framework. You need to pray, Lord, do your work in his or her heart so that we may live worthy of this glorious calling, especially in the context that you are returning. And so that's Paul's first request. But he doesn't stop there. He has a second. Look at verse 11. We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So what's he mean by that? Well, Paul, if you remember in Philippians, he says, it's God that works in you to will and act according to his purpose. But here he's actually praying something a little bit different. Paul prays that God, by his power, might bring to fruition each Christian's resolution for good, everything they do out of faith. He prays that God may empower us in our good faith-prompted purposes. The NIV puts it this way, he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. See, Paul presupposes here as he's praying for these believers uh, that they've been so transformed uh, by the gospel through their conversion, by being united to Christ, that now they have these new set of goals. It's amazing. Paul knows that now that we have been saved, we will have resolutions, desires for good. See, I can safely say to you, standing up here, that prior to being saved, I didn't have a desire to witness for Christ. I, I, I could tell you that I had no desire to go on mission trips. I, I had no desire to help others in service for Christ. In fact, I had no desire to help anyone but myself. That's just the truth. I didn't want to get up one day and say, let's go worship the Lord. I, I, I didn't say, you know what, in, instead of going to the party, I think I'm going to stay home and read the scripture tonight. None of those things were in my mind. But that all changed, right? When, when God transformed me, when he saved me. And so Paul is praying that God will take those new thoughts, those new wholesome and spiritually minded purposes, and then bring them about, that they be fulfilled. We all have great ideas as believers, but unless God works in and through us, they are just pie-in-the-sky ideas. I desire for you to take that card and put those names of family members or friends that you can invite to church. That's all well and good, but it will not change unless God does work, and Paul recognizes that. It will all be pie in the sky, and it'll never see the light of day. There'll be no fruit from it. Paul is saying, you want to grow in grace? You want to increase your faith? You want to be steadfast in trial? Well, well, wanting it is not enough. Just wanting it's not enough. Resolve is not even enough. It's not enough to plan, although you should plan. It's not enough to come up and say with a church's vision statement. Nothing wrong with that. It's not enough to throw money at a spiritual activity. What you need is God's power. 
He needs God's power working in you to bring that idea that you have because now that you've been changed by Jesus, you have these ideas for spiritual growth and they will come to fruition through prayer. Proverbs says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. And so this second request of Paul is that God will take our plans, things that are prompted in our life from faith, our resolutions for good, be it prayer cards, be it small groups, be it Bible study, whatever it may be, evangelism, some type of outreach, and work in us, and God will work through us by his spirit so we'll follow through and bear fruit in those areas. That's the prayer request. And so we must pray. We must pray for God's power. God's power to live worthy of our calling and God's power to work through us so that our resolutions for good will be carried out. That's the content of Paul's prayer. And he prays that. Why? Well, that leads us to the concern of Paul's prayer. Look at the beginning of verse 12. I want you to pray to live worthy of their calling and for everyone else too. I want you to, I want you to pray for God's power so you can carry out your good faith intentions for good. And I want you to do it so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Paul's very first and main concern when he prays and prays anything for that matter is the glory of the Lord Jesus. His ultimate concern is not your well-being. His ultimate concern is not that you become rich. His ultimate concern is none of those things. Ultimately, he wants to see these changes in your life because he wants Jesus to be glorified in your life. That is what's to be desired the most, something to be prayed for, that they are only proximate ends. We should pray for those things. All the things we pray about all the time, they're all important. But the ultimate end of those prayers needs to be Jesus Christ be glorified in our lives. That's the chief end, to glorify God. That's his first concern, his main concern. But look at the second one. The first one was easy. We know that we're supposed to glorify Jesus. But now Paul says his goal is that we should be glorified in Jesus and so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. What does he mean by that? Well, Paul knows that someday we will be glorified, as Romans 8.30 states. One day we will be made perfect. One day we will have resurrected bodies like Jesus. One day we will be without sin. But even now, Even then and now, he insists that we are being transformed into Jesus' likeness with ever-increasing glory. In fact, he talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." If we're going to be transformed now from glory to glory, and so for you and me to be glorified in Jesus, in Jesus means for you and me to be transformed more and more into the image of his likeness. The more we are like Jesus, the more we glorify our Savior. And so let me ask this. What what do you think gives God more glory? It's a hypothetical question. Does it give God more glory in your life when he makes you healthy? 
He heals you. That brings glory to God, right? If you're sick, we pray for that often, and we should pray for that. We pray for that this morning. That is part of the reason for our pastoral prayers is to pray for you. Is it to make you wealthy? Nothing wrong with wealth. Um, Or is it most glorifying to God that when you are unhealthy and you're poor and struggling that you persevere through it? I mean, like I said, He's glorified in both, but I think it's pretty clear in Scripture that God can be glorified in both, but it's the latter that gives him the most glory. See, when when the world looks upon you and, and, and sees you going through some type of suffering, and in the midst of that suffering, you're steadfast, you're trusting in the Lord. And, and you're conformed more and more into the image of our suffering Savior, Christ himself is glorified then. Here's the point. We need to be sure when we pray for others, we are not too quick to think that what is most important is that they're healed. What is most important is that they get a job. What is most important that they're happy. And nothing wrong with those things. Don't misunderstand me. But rather, we must pray, God, use this situation. This is of utmost importance. Use this situation, whatever it may be, to transform them into the image of your son that Christ would receive all the glory in their life. See, we should be praying that God would change us in our difficult circumstances way more than we pray that God would change the circumstances. You can pray for both, but we have to have our priorities straight. Again, the goal is Christ's glory, not our well-being. Hopefully, and our prayer is that both be the same. He be glorified in healing, but if he doesn't, it's his glory, and we glorify Christ the most when we are glory gloried in him, glorified in him by becoming more like him, particularly in his suffering. Now, let me just say, when we are glorified in the sense just described, being made more like him, that doesn't take away from Christ's glory. You know, when I see a believer that, I, that, that I'm just impressed with, you know, when I say, wow, they live their life in such a way, it's amazing. I'm not taking away glory from Jesus when I do that. I mean, I could be because my heart's deceitful, but the goal isn't to take away glory to Jesus. In fact, it gives more glory to Jesus because it's only through Jesus that that way of, of glory is possible. It's the only way to grow is through him. And so when I see somebody mature in the faith, I can say, God is at work and glorify God. And that's the final point here. The confidence of Paul's prayer or the ground of Paul's prayer. Look at verse 12. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We must constantly be reminded of the fact that just as we were saved by grace, so we are growing in Christ's likeness by grace, and we're glorified by grace. The fact that Paul is asking God to do this work through his power in the people makes this obvious. Why pray that way? Why not just tell you to go out and do it? 
we could do it in our own strength, we wouldn't need to pray. But Paul's saying, I need to pray. These are super Christians. These are people taking a stand in the midst of suffering. And Paul says, I need to pray that God's power works in them, that God strengthens them, because they wouldn't be able to do it on their own. And neither would we. See, only God can accomplish the work of sanctification in our lives. Only God can increase our faith and increase our love and increase our steadfastness. Only God can transform us from glory to glory. Yes, we must resolve to do it. Yes, we work by faith. Yes, we pray. And why do we pray? Because we need his power and grace. Do you ever stop to think why prayer is so powerful? You know, you always, today you hear people say, I'm sending you prayers and well wishes. My well wishes, as good intended as they may be, accomplish nothing for you. I'm sending hope your way. I'm not a magician. Either that, it's, it's silliness. I understand the sentiment that, you know, if somebody says that to you, you don't have to be rude. But the idea doesn't work. Why? The power is not in my words. The power is not even in my prayer. The power is in the God to whom I pray. We grow in faith by grace. We endure by grace. We become fruitful by grace. And this is why Paul could be confident that the Thessalonians would indeed increase in love, faith, and endurance because they weren't doing it in their own strength. It was because he was asking God to give them the power. And so that's the important thing. That's what makes prayer so powerful. You know, the truth is, if we're not growing in grace as much, maybe we're not asking God enough for it. And he promises to answer that prayer. And so Paul prays. Well, let me close. I, wanna, I just want to go back uh, to a point I made earlier. We need to pray with the end in mind. I, I talked about that. Paul talks about we need to live our lives with the end in mind, but we need to pray with the end in mind. I want to do it by telling a story I came across. In 1952, a, a young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick stepped off the beach at Catalina Island into the water, and her goal was to swim to the shore in mainland California. She was an experienced, long-distance uh, swimmer. She was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. Well, on this particular day, she set out the weather was foggy, and it was a little chilly. Uh, she could hardly see the boats that were obviously beside her to accompany her on the way. And for 15 hours, though, she swam. Uh, I walked up the stairs yesterday for five minutes. I was passed out. She, <laughs> she swam for 15 hours. And at one point, she begged to be taken out. Uh, but the people with her were encouraging her to keep going, be persistent, telling her again and again, you can make it. The shore is not far away. You can do it. Well, eventually, she was physically and emotionally exhausted, and she finally stopped swimming, and they had to pull her out of the water. And so the boats took her in, and they were making their way to the shore, and she discovered it was a mere half a mile away. Now, the next day, she was in a news conference, and what she said is this. I do not want to make excuses for myself. I am the one who asked to be pulled out. But I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Well, two months later, she proved her point. On a bright and clear day, she plunged back into the sea and swam the distance. And so here's the application to us. 
at the heart of all our praying must be a, a biblical vision, a, a biblical vision of heaven, a, a biblical vision of eternity, a biblical vision of a, a, a Savior who will return for us because He loves us, a, vi- a biblical vision for judgment, a biblical vision for our full glorification. We literally need to keep the words of the Apostle Paul always before us, found in Colossians 3. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, when we have that perspective, when we see the shoreline, as it were, when we have that framework, when that is the lens from which we pray, then what happens is we begin prioritizing the things Paul prioritizes in his prayer. And what happens? Well, then the church increases. We grow and are transformed from glory to glory. And ultimately, and most importantly, Christ is glorified. Let's pray. Our great God and our Heavenly Father, we're we're humbled that we're often so short-sighted when we pray. And Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you would give this grand vision of the future that is before us and that it would transform our prayers so that this church and that we as individuals would too be transformed for Christ's glory. Amen.